Welcome to ACNL in Action, brought to you by the Association of California Nurse Leaders. I'm your host, Charlene Platon. Our guest today is Dr. Rhonda Foster. Rhonda is an executive coach and consultant specializing in children's hospitals and patient experience. Rhonda is also a fellow member of ACNL, and with nearly a decade of experience serving in administrative roles in children's hospitals, we thought it would be great to sit down and talk with her about some of the unique challenges that children's care presents. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rhonda. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, and you have a lot of experience working in children's hospitals as well as adult care facilities in consulting and administration. And can you walk us through your journey and what kept bringing you back to children's care? Oh, wow. That's a, I like that question. Um, it's something that you don't necessarily think about often. I have, I found my um, clinical niche when three years into my career, and I took a job in labor and delivery as a staff nurse in labor and delivery, and I loved it. I loved every aspect about it. And what I really found myself um, seeking were the relationships that you can, the bond that you can have with a parent or a child in a moment and creating an experience for them that was just not necessarily a hospital experience. And so, although you can do that in other arenas, in other clinical specialties, I found my love in the women and children space. And as I moved on and as clinical areas were split, um, you either had to choose women or children's. And so I found my path in the children's space and I loved it. I loved it. Still love it. That's wonderful. And how does a children's hospital prioritize the unique needs of young, younger patients while providing patient-centered care? I think it's, um, it's very different in that the, although the child is the patient in the scenario, the family unit, whoever that is, also becomes the patient in that scenario. Um, one of the things I like to say is most parents are, you probably don't see a parent at their best when a child is sick. And so we have to anticipate all the anxiety that goes along with that, in addition to taking care of the child. So I, so I think it's very different in that you are constantly navigating the relationship with the family unit and their experience. Right. So in some ways, you're taking care of not only the patient, but also the family or the visitors who or the caregivers of the child who's being cared for. In that expanded family or I mean, it can be as a in um, of one or in of 25 or 30. And you have to make adjustments to that. Absolutely. And that is very unique compared to what you might see in adult care hospitals. And Speaking of other challenges, what are some of the challenges that might come with uh, involving families in the care and decision-making process for patients that may not be old enough to make these decisions on their own about their care? Well, I think there are a couple of things come to my mind. The first is um, because there are so many families that are not, um, a what is a typical family, what that looks like? And so, so many times, if we just focus on um, one parent or two parents, 
and not get a sense of what the family dynamic is like, because that has that has a major role when parents or caregivers don't agree on the plan of care, when um, the anxiety levels uh, reach a peak where um, everybody's stressed out and what you do in situations like that to try to either mitigate it or bring the level of anxiety down. Right, exactly. Because there might be, there could, sounds like there could be a lot of disagreements, even interfamily or between families, between people of the same, um, the same family, essentially, who have different ideas for how to support the child or the different treatments that they might need. Absolutely. That's what you find. And finding out what those things might be early on. I think the other aspect that I that I realize is super, super important. It's important to listen to your patient anyway, but it's really important to make sure that we're listening to the patient, the family, and being that liaison and being that advocate for all entities when you think about what's the right thing to do. Absolutely. And I think it could be easy to kind of miss that sometimes, right? Because if you're focused on communicating with the family and trying to meet their needs, it could be hard to also focus on what the child's needs might be, or it might be kind of hard to tell what what those needs might look like, because they could present pretty differently from what the caregivers might be saying. So definitely a challenge to consider when taking care of children in, in, in that type of environment. And, and how do you ensure patient safety and confidentiality then for for uh, patients, for uh, younger patients who might not be in the safest environment? Well, you know, one of the things to consider, and when we talk about children or pediatrics, sometimes we don't think about the teenage, the teenager and their level of involvement in decision-making as it relates to their care. And I think that's another factor when I think, when I think more about the question that you just asked about um, how the experience is different. But when I think about patient safety issues, I think um, there are some things that that are just pervasive, no matter if it's a child or an adult in a hospital. And that is our obligation to keep them safe and what that what that might look like and what it looks like at home versus what it versus what it looks like in the hospital. Um, a side rail being left down in a hospital is a, a potential injury where it's something that you might not even think about in your home. Um, the temperature of, uh, of water that we use may end up, it's, it's different for a child skin than an adult. Just so some of the treatments and the therapies and just understanding that they're more at risk and taking all that into account. Exactly. And that's also another unique challenge that may present itself with the environments, right? Because the home environment could be vastly different from the hospital environment for a lot of those factors that maybe, you know, might not really necessarily be in the control of the patient. They might not choose to be in, you know, an environment where they have access to um, different resources or even, you know, or even some of the securities that they might experience in the hospital. But even even with that said, uh, there is a lot to consider for just as you said, for teenage patients as well, because they can Mm -hmm. um, voice a lot of their needs and their concerns. And and uh, just going with that topic for for their confidentiality, 
Is there any kind of recommendation you might have for preserving their confidentiality, even if it might be at odds with their caregivers or whoever might be taking care of them? I, I'm thinking that um, if, again, as much of these potential issues that you might have be able to identify on upfront, um, building a relationship with that patient if they're older, asking that patient what they think about their uh, disease and care, asking because they'll tell you, they'll tell you, right. um, asking them about helping them carve out ways to have the conversation with the parent and if. And it's not a it's in a best case scenario, engaging a patient care conference of all the um, the folks involved, physicians, parents, loved ones, um, nursing staff, so that that's an environment where they can be heard and the wishes acknowledged. Absolutely. And and, you know, as you've been um, speaking to that, I, I've just been reflecting, too, in terms of being mindful of the patient's needs uh, in terms of. Their age is, is always important when it comes to um, the care that we provide as nurses. And, and that goes for adult patients as well, because we could, you know, sometimes not look to the patient's needs when we have kind of our own thoughts about what, what kind of care they should receive. <laughs> Definitely. And we typically do have the thoughts about. <laughs> we do have the, the opinions. We, yep. We think we know. We, and it's, it's not about us it, at that point. It's about what's in the best interest of the child and their family. Right. And that's so important. And, and that really speaks to the advocacy of the patients, especially if they are minors and especially if they they may not feel that they have a voice or if they or maybe if they don't typically have a voice in their home environment. That is something that is really important to their care overall and the outcomes that they experience while they're while they're in the hospital. And um, again, I don't want to say worst case scenario, best case scenario, in addition to a care conference, an ethical consult might be um, something that um, the staff can engage in just to make sure everybody's clear on what's what the rights are, as well as what the desires are and how to how to address those things. Right. Absolutely. Right. Making sure that um, that that ethical component is integrated so that all these important considerations are included in the decision-making process is so important. And I think when we think about, you know, involving ethical committees, we might think of only certain scenarios or situations, mm -hmm. but it might be very pertinent for some scenarios um, that include your patient, you know, in, in probably some atypical situations. So it's always a good, um, it's always something to have at the back of your mind. If there's always. a... Right, right, exactly. I, I tell nurses when I do consultations, I tell nurses because many times they think just like you just said that the ethical issues are these big overwhelming right. things. And mm -hmm. it's like, nah, it's that thing that that's kind of a ick ick factor. Uh, where you're thinking about it on the ride home and you're thinking, man, that didn't really go like I thought it was going to go, or I just don't feel right about that. And having a place to take that. So it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be something major, but it's enough to, if it's enough to be still on your mind or, or you feeling like, oh, I wish that had gone differently, or I don't know how, you know, it's, it's one of those places to say, Hey, can, can we, can we huddle 
Can we talk about this? Can we get a consult? Do whatever, because those those resources are available. Yes. And that's so true. That even takes me back to when I was in nursing school for my undergrad undergraduate program. I still remember some of my pediatric rotations where I had some patients in the children's hospitals that um, were in certain scenarios where I just made some, some observations, you know, very subtle observations, but it stayed with me. And I think it's things like that, where we use our nursing intuition to really advocate and, and, you know, really move forward with um, things like an ethical consultation or, uh, you know, a discussion to, to talk about that. Cause you're right. If it is sitting with you, there must be a reason why. <laughs> it is. And you know what I, I think too, Charlene, and it's advocacy is one of the biggest gifts given to nurses. Um, it's, it's something that transcends patient experience. It's something that trans. I mean, it's a it's a it's a care tool that we have at our disposal, and what we really I don't know how often we think of it that way, but it's always at our disposal, and I, I consider it a gift. Absolutely, to the profession. Yes, absolutely. There are so many situations where nurses have been advocates for their patients, and it's been life changing for their patients for that reason. Because the nurse had, you know, an intuition to, you know, move forward with the decision or to, you know, to ask the patient a question or to just mm-hmm. hear them out. And and that is truly a gift and something so unique to nursing. So, um, you know, what it reminds me of, Charlene, when we think about the voice of the patient, um, one of the first children's hospital experiences I had, you know, patient experience is usually um for a child, it's usually sent to a parent to fill out. To, right. to, but one of the things that um, we did a study and about the patient experience and we asked the patients and instead of and we gave we asked them to give elements of care a grade and things that they were concerned about uh, and a, a, a B, a C or an F. And. Um, the, the kids filled it out and we learned a lot. One thing we learned that even though they're a child, they still want privacy. Mm-hmm. And many times you don't necessarily think about that as an issue with a child. You just kind of go in the room. They were like, can the person, and they would write the comments. They don't not when they come in my room. Oh, wow. Yes. So we learned, okay, privacy is a factor for them. Um, being having autonomy about when you take your shower, when you take, you know, was important to them. And so, but many times because the mindset is like, okay, in, in nursing, we do our, we do get our stuff done. And they were like, let me take my shower at night as opposed to during the day. Nobody asked me when I take, you know. (laughs) And so when you think about little things like that, it's like, oh, it taught us so much that I don't know that we would have learned from the parent. Right. Absolutely. And because they're not thinking about it. They're thinking, did you take a shower today? Let me wear my clothes. I mean, some of the things like that. Right. And that's so interesting because um, I you're right. I didn't think about the fact that a lot of um, patient experience questions may go to the parent or the caregiver. And that really excludes a lot of the information that could be vital to the care of the patient while they're at the hospital. And those little things that matter to children matter a lot to adults, too. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It does make sense, doesn't it? It does. And that's, 
you know, I think that really speaks to, um, you know, not making any assumptions about patient's care and the importance of um, being that advocate in the way that you ask those questions and you ask the preferences of the patient and including the small things when it comes to hygiene or just their daily routine practices, because that makes that could really make or break their patient experience at the end of the day. Yes. And, you know, I am wondering, too, because pediatrics really involves giving care to patients ranging, you know, all the way from infancy to young adulthood. So it's a quite a range. And how do you train staff for such a wide range of child development stages with such a huge variation? On a regular basis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Keeping in mind all the developmental um, milestones and keeping in mind the nuances related to uh, not just age, but gender, culture, um, social aspects, and just really, really, again, getting to know the patient and getting to know um, what's important to them. And what's normal? I think knowing what's normal helps us see what's not normal. Or when I say not normal, like where a developmental milestone may um, not be there. But again, it might not be there because of um, genetics, for example. Like they were, um, I remember a case where they were talking, had had given a child a said it wasn't growing, the child wasn't growing appropriately. And they were like, you know, going on and on with the mom about what she was, what the child ate and how she was preparing food. And when she, when, when it, when it was all said and done, they looked back, the parents were small, both Mm -hmm. all the children were small. Mm. They all ate this. So it's like, okay, this person's not going to be six, six, over six feet tall when everybody in the, the family is small. So again, having our mindset on looking at the developmental chart, you have to also look at what's the family and all the other things. Uh, yeah, that's such a great point. And I'm one of those people, actually, I was, I was always at the like lowest the lower end, end yes. of, the, of the growth chart. And that was just my normal. Everyone in my family is you know, shorter um, than the average uh, American, you know, standards might be, but that was, that was our normal. And look what you just said, the average American standard might be. And so many times we impute those standards and make judgments about them. I think about um, someone saying, you know, this baby looks funny. This baby really looks funny. And they, you know, they don't describe it like that now, but they might say it at the nurse's station. And you think the baby looks like his dad or his mom. I mean, so it's like, it doesn't mean that there's some kind of abnormality, you know? Right. Right. There's such, you know, a huge variety and diversity of people in our world. And it is something that, that, obviously will present in the children that we take care of. And, um, and I think, you know, when we think about children, we might not consider that all the time, <laughs> but, I know. but it is really interesting because the, the way that we take care of our adults and the way that we take care of our children can be really different. So uh, it's just really interesting to see how that plays out in, you know, in the workforce in the healthcare environment. And those are definitely examples of how that can present. So really great to 
have the awareness of, you know, if we catch ourselves um, doing things like that, making judgments or assumptions based on, you know, what we think of might be normal um, in general, but, but in general, there could be, there's a lot of different types of normal. There's a lot of different types of normal. (laughs) Exactly. Normal is on the spectrum. Right. Normal is a spectrum. Normal is a spectrum. Right. And, and so when it comes to taking care of children and, you know, with all this variety and, and all the, the diversity that the nurses might face, uh, what kind of specialized training do nurses and other healthcare workers need for pediatric patients? Or how do you think they would most benefit from this type of training? I think there's, well, it's funny. Uh, I'll give you a, a simple one. Uh, and I've seen, I've seen it in my organizations that I've worked in and I've heard people talk about it no matter where I go hair care and um how do you how do you take care of um curly hair or coarser hair and not having it get matted or not taken care of that's huge and so one of the things that that I've seen hospitals start to do is by ethnically uh, appropriate products for their patients as opposed yeah. to just one type of shampoo or one type. Mm. Um, I've even, um, we've even talked about the hair brushes that can be used to get. So be paying attention to things like that. Um, that's a simple one, but I think another one is paying attention and being respectful of, of what certain things mean based on culture. Right. For example, if if um, I remember a scenario where there was the belief system that if the person didn't get better by a certain amount of time, they weren't going to get any better. And it's like that might not be the case. Mm -hmm. That might not be. um, But again, in their belief system. And so being respectful and trying to seek understanding as opposed to, again, that judgment about this family's bonkers or this, this person doesn't want to participate uh, in the care or they, or I don't think they know how to participate. Again, that's another one of those judgments we make just because I might not ask a bunch of questions, which is another problem sometimes that, that staff have. Um, So having them be okay with parental or caregiver curiosity. Mm -hmm. Being okay with that, because again, we live in this world of healthcare. They don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to be, just be a whole lot more sensitive to it. Absolutely. And you know what I think too? Prior, we know that child in an episode of illness, they know that child out in episode and out of episode. And so who that child presents itself in your hospital is more than who they really are if that makes sense at all. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it does. It's, you know, if someone in general, someone presents to the hospital outside of who they would be, you know, at home because they're not comfortable when they're in the hospital, they're in a completely new setting, especially if they're children and they're they're scared, right. They're scared. And this might be the first time they've been taken out of, you know, taken into a completely new environment and had to stay there for a while. So that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, with with that being said, uh, we know that pediatric patients can often face emotional and psychosocial challenges due to illness and also hospitalization and medical procedures that they might receive. And so how does the hospital provide psychosocial support for children 
Um, oh, we do a fan- fantastic job because there's child life therapists, there's music therapy, there's animal therapy, there's social work, there's uh, care coordinators. We do a phenomenal job with the resources. And most pediatric environments are sensitive to that. Um, they their their environments are conducive to um, pediatric care, and they're they they are designed that way on purpose. So having those resources available, um, and and really again looking at the evidence about how do we manage pain, how do we how do we manage difficult situations, how do we how do we um, how do we manage even just this the the growing needs or the the change in our children how do we educate continue to educate our children while they're in the hospital so all those factors um when you have an adult in the hospital you they you don't have to worry about them their homework or having right. their schoolwork sent to them usually right. they're calling someone saying take notes for me or something like that that may be very very different for a child right exactly and, you know, I, it's hard to believe that we're almost done. <laughs> we're almost done with our conversation today. I feel that we could talk about this for so much more time, but I'm curious if there are other ways, um, you know, actually other unique issues in children's care that people might not typically realize that you might want to share. I think, um, I think there's a lot more out there in terms of um, drug addiction. I think there's a lot more to take into account when it comes to gender issues um, and just the amount of anxiety and pressure that's on a child today mm-hmm. um, and what that looks like, especially in single family homes uh, where they might be uh, part of the economic system of that household. So I think that the the weightiness of childhood is different. Mm-hmm. I think even I, it's it's hard. It's hard out here for kids. There's Absolutely. so many pressure. There's so many pressures. There's so many influences. Um, and you think back, it's like, gosh, I didn't have to deal with that. So and then don't even think about I didn't even address social media. Right. <laughs> right. But I know all of that. It's hard out here for kids. Media. Right. It's very challenging. And and I mean, COVID-19 was another challenge that oh I think goodness. many children, many children haven't experienced the pandemic, I don't think, to the scale that we have with COVID-19. So that presented a lot of interesting yeah. and unique challenges for children. A lot of. Yes. And having to um, school age kids, having them all of a sudden not have their peers anymore except on Zoom, um, what if the home didn't have internet? So we saw we saw some of that. We saw that in our ambulatory um, patients. Not everybody, you, can assume, you can't assume everybody has internet cap- capability. You gave me my, you gave me a computer, great, but what about the internet? Um, so, so, and then looking at again, what kids lost when they weren't going to, to in-person school. If you had means, you could have tutors and hire a teacher or whatever else you wanted to do. But again, if you're a child and there's a um, economic despair, living with an economic disparity, that puts another burden on you. Right. 
we often, I think when we talk about the social determinants of health, we we tend to talk about that from the perspective of an adult, you know, an adult patient, mm-hmm. but it's absolutely relevant to children as well because they they are in the, the households but where the adults are that face these um, disparities that have the same challenges with, you know, with their transportation, with their access to care, with all the different items that make up the social determinants of health. All of them. And I think about all the housing insecurity with, again, during the pandemic, because so many people lost hours or lost jobs, housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, at least if they were getting uh, lunch at school, breakfast at school. Now, what happens to that? Uh, I, I have a, uh, a colleague whose daughter was uh, is a principal at a school. And she's so worried about her kids during the pandemic that and they couldn't deliver services out out of the school because they were closed. So they got a group of people together and just said, we'll be in the parking lot from this day and this day with groceries so that because they knew that their their the economic situation of their their um, their population. Right. And and that's absolutely you know, a resource that could help um, a lot of people who, you know, who um, might find themselves with um, food insecurity or, you know, other insecurities that that I think a lot of um, nurses might not factor in when they're taking care of these patients in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's really important to, to think about how do social determinants of health show up in the patient's day-to-day life. And once they leave the hospital, can they maintain you know, certain access to what they need. And, uh, and if not, how can they get that access? You know, what's the reality for them? You just nailed it in terms of the social determinants of health and looking at that with a pediatric lens, um, because you are a part of that family unit, whatever it is, right. Whatever it is. Right. And, you know, I, I want to give you one, one final comment and and say, see if there was anything else that you wanted to share, any other insights you wanted to give to our listeners when it comes to pediatric care, um, especially in today's uh, day and age. Any other insights that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think always remembering to um, advocate for patients and families. Notice I said patients and families and family is whatever they say it is and not what we think it should be. I think always remembering to advocate, always remembering to listen, listen with the intent to understand and remember that a parent with a sick child has an anxiety level that's out of this world. And so when they get impatient and when they are not their nicest, it's the anxiety potentially, mostly. um, And again, patience. Absolutely. It's uh, unimaginable what a parent or a caregiver might go through when their loved one is in the hospital, especially if that is a younger a younger person. So um, patience is absolutely a consideration for all healthcare workers taking care of these patients. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Rhonda Foster, for joining us. It's been so great to speak with you, and I hope to have you back on the show. All right. Thanks so much. I would enjoy that. Thank you. And our guest today was Dr. Rhonda Foster. You can find her on LinkedIn and we'll drop a link in the show notes. And we'd love to hear your feedback. 
email us at socialmedia at acnl.org and connect with us on LinkedIn and Facebook at ACNL Nurse. And as always, if you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and share. ACNL in Action is presented by the Association of California Nurse Leaders with new episodes on the first Friday of every month. To learn more about the show or ACNL in general, please visit us at acnl.org. Thank you for listening.